Welcome to the Gavelcast Series Seven, Episode Twenty Nine. This podcast is brought to you by the Also Malaysia National Board. This episode is titled "How to Eliminate Gender Bias." We hope you guys enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to Gavelcast Series Seven. The title for today's podcast would be "How to Eliminate Gender Bias." I am Farisha, and my partner Connie will be the host for today. Before we start, allow me to introduce our honourable guest, Dr. Sharon Bok. Dr. Sharon is an associate professor of gender studies at the School of Arts and Social Sciences, Monash University, Malaysia. She graduated with a PhD in religious studies in 2002 and attained master in women and religion in 1997 at University of Lancaster, United Kingdom. She has authored several pieces regarding gender studies, such as the tension between women's rights and uh, women's rights and religions, the case of Malaysia. Her external engagements include interviews with BFM Radio and facilitating gender and development awareness training for stakeholders in United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees Malaysia. Recently. In March 2021, she was one of the panel for Women's Rights Virtual Conference Malaysia Women Lawyers. Welcome, Sharon, to our Gavelcast. Thank you very much, Farisha, and Connie, and Farisha for the introduction. Hi, Dr. Sharon. It's、Hi. an honor to have you here today. How was your day? It's been good so far. Thank you. Great, great to hear that. So we'll start with our first question. So our first question for you is that, looking at the current situation, do you think that gender bias in the workplace has evolved? Has it improved significantly, or is it still in a state similar to fifty years ago, where males are still inherently preferred over women, and it hinders their career progression? Okay, thank you, Connie, for that question. Although I'm in my early fifties, but you know, I mean to. Imagine that the workplace is、uh, has not changed for the past fifty、uh, years. I guess would be unfair. And whilst it is also on the one hand difficult to generalize, but I think we may be confident in saying that、uh, gender equality is familiar. It's a familiar concept, and what is even better is something that is practiced. In many many workplaces,、uh, not the least because there is a code of conduct, of practice, and this relates to sexual harassment, of course, which I think I will say more、um, uh, later. So I think the current situation, to answer your question, has improved because、uh, more and more、uh, employers and employees are aware that. There is such a thing as gender bias. There is such a thing as institutional sexism. There is such a thing as unconscious bias, and that these are slowly being addressed. But certainly, where they are not,、uh, one of the effects of that would be that women's advancement,、um, you know, at various、uh, career stages, that is surely hindered. Yeah.、Uh, thank you for the answers.、Uh, it is good to know that the current situation has evolved. Um, you have mentioned that there is a thing called unconscious bias, 
and in our knowledge is quite harder to tackle than outright bias. How do you think we can make a positive change to the mindset and certain biases of the people or women that exist in society? I like this question because you have drawn a distinction between unconscious bias and outright bias. It's so easy for people to recognize what is in your face, right? Whether it's sexism, racism, homophobia, transphobia. Uh, in relation to gender equality, I would associate um, outright bias as, you know, sexism that is very in your face. And unconscious bias, you are right, it's uh, more difficult to tackle because sometimes the people who have unconscious bias, and that's why it's called unconscious, are not aware that, you know, they have such biases and these unconscious biases um, can happen, uh, you know, within among women as well as among men um, themselves. So your question, how do we think we can make a positive change to the mindset? Um, and that is precisely where we need to begin. Um, how can we play a role each in our different positions? Uh, if you know, you're a student, if you are a person who is working and gradually there are more and more people unemployed today, of course, but it certainly begins with uh, changing mindsets and also, you know, one's ability to want to change one's mindset if we uncover that, you know, there's some unconscious bias and it can be targeted at any aspect, whether it's gender, whether it's race-based or, you know, whether it's a sexual base. Um, yeah. Um, but how can we do that? Well, when you have podcasts like this, and where you are um, making visible or where you are airing um, opinions, you know, that are somewhat different or run counter to mainstream ideas. I think that is a very healthy and also very effective way in tackling unconscious bias and in changing mindsets. Um, but many people still hold on to unconscious biases or rather their purposeful biases, uh, they're not willing to let that go. And that has something to do with the fact that um, certain people are benefiting. So we have, for instance, male privilege. So there are, you know, um, many men, not all, who benefit from male privilege, for instance. So it's not in their interest, I guess, to look out for others in terms of, you know, tackling gender inequalities. I see, Dr. Sharon. It's interesting to hear that there's certain people benefiting from something called male privileges. And we see that changes can start from ourselves in personal, in a personal level, and also initiating uh, activities and also awareness in the society. Besides Besides on a personal level, what do you think about the changes from the public authority? The previous government of Malaysia was actively working to improve the legal equality of men and women. In your opinion, what are the most significant changes that should be highlighted? Thanks, Connie. You are extremely right about the fact that it should not just be an individual attempt or an individual effort in terms of tackling you know, gender inequalities and gender inequities at the societal level, 
it should also be the responsibility of everyone and specific uh, collectivities and especially certain institutions because these are all institutionally driven whether it's the institution of the family or whether it's you know legal institutions that both of you are wanting to be part of um, are studying very hard to be a part of and uh, over and above all it's the institution is the executive arm of um of the country which means the government and when we look at for instance uh, women's human rights conventions such as CEDAW, the convention on the elimination of all forms of discrimination against women governments represent us you know represent each and every one of us as uh, citizens of malaysia sit at the un level and ratify these conventions that they have pledged to implement at an incremental level so it's very much governments who should be held accountable if they fall short or fail to implement uh, and operationalize women's human rights and the previous government of malaysia has indeed um, introduced two uh, bills well more but um, two that i will mention in relation to gender inequality or rather to advance gender equality and that is the sexual harassment bill which has actually been sitting in the back burners for a very very long time as well as the gender equality bill so there are many people who believe many people meaning feminists and activists who believe that it's ju not just enough to have made the constitutional amendment of article 82 um article 8 clause 2 where you know gender should not be a basis of non-discrimination but there are many feminist legal scholars who believe that not just in the country of like malaysia but others where you need a specific explicit law on gender equality you know mandating gender equality and this would be one of the best ways to realize uh, principles of CEDAW for instance so once we have a functioning government uh, it would be good to see these bills being enacted so that the legal equality of men and women can definitely improve but even if we had the legislation, going back to your previous question, uh, there are certain mindsets that also need to be changed. So people in law enforcement, you know, people who draft and amend laws and people who execute them, uh, that all of these various stakeholders also need to be gender sensitized. So that's also very important. Otherwise, you know, it'd be pretty much like a mismatch where you have the laws in place but people don't actually buy into that so they interpret it so so people like yourselves you know who are who are being groomed and nurtured to interpret the law to operationalize it that's also very important that um that you know all of us are gender sensitized in that regard um, dr sharins you have mentioned that the government of malaysia has adopted the CEDAW as a representative representative at united nation so do you think that this adoption is sufficient and effective or does the current government or the previous government only adopt or implement it halfly and becomes one of the reasons that Malaysia could not attain the gender, the full gender equality that we want it to be? Uh, thanks for that question, Farisha. Firstly, it's, I think, because we live on planet Earth and not you know, in 
utopia in some feminist utopian world. Maybe that only happens in science fiction. So maybe the full realization of gender equality and what that means for different people and who decides this, you know, for different people who, who um, are at stake. I think it's, it's something that will never be fully achieved uh, all the time uh, for all people. But certainly it should not stop us from trying and from aspiring to achieve that uh, gender equality for all people um, and, and at all times and all places. So there is a universal aspect to, to gender equality. And CEDAW is the only women's human rights treaty. So the fact that so many nations have ratified that and have pledged to um, operationalize it, including Malaysia, and you're correct, in 1995, is an important start. And what happens in terms of the CEDAW mechanism is that countries or governments, so for instance, the government of Malaysia, uh, does a five-year reporting to the CEDAW committee. So all countries are also given, you know, a bit of wriggle room, a bit of leeway to have reservations because it is only realistic to, to expect, to anticipate that certain countries will have certain reservations, namely because of cultures and religions that they feel, you know, might be a barrier to advancing the full uh, gamut of uh, women's human rights, for instance. So Malaysia, even when it signed on in 1995, had reservations um, on the question of marital rape, for instance. Um, so CEDAW itself enables uh, various governments to incrementally you know, put into effect or advance women's human rights because there are many, many principles um, in CEDAW. And there's a five-year cycle so that's the government report. But there is also the shadow report that's generated by non-governmental organizations. So I've also been part of these, uh, you know, consultative uh, groups on both sides, uh, both camps. And I would say that in the context of Malaysia alone, there are some very well-meaning um, politicians, uh, maybe not at present, and namely the Ministry of Women, Family and Community Development, uh, but, you know, in terms of mainstreaming gender and mainstreaming gender equality, it's not just the responsibility of the Ministry of Women, Family and Community Development. Of course, it should cut through all the various ministries from human resource to transport to finance uh, and education and so on and so forth. Huh? And do I think if the adoption of CEDAW is sufficient and effective, as I mentioned, it's a very, very strong start because it comes to us, you know, uh, presented as a legal framework, as a human rights framework. But of course, cultures and religions also need to be considered. And um, members of civil society and the women's groups, the women's NGOs, um, like the Women's Aid, you know, AWAM, um, and others, so many others, Empower, they do a lot in terms of trying to find a common ground, trying to find a middle ground between what it means to advance women's human rights in the context of Malaysia, where so many of our um, uh, major decisions about our bodies, our sexualities, our relationships are still so much informed by cultures and religions, whether or not we you know, adhere to the Islamic faith the Christian faith, whether we are Buddhists, we are Hindus, 
you know, we adhere to indigenous spiritualities and so on and so forth. So we will need more collaboration on organization and governments and maybe CEDAW is a good start but not sufficient for the moment considering the circumstances of culture and also other factors. So according to Article 8 sub 2 of our federal constitution, it guarantees that gender discrimination is prohibited. In your opinion, are there still any gaps in the laws to guarantee equal rights to men and women and in enforcing non-discrimination? Thanks, Connie. I think both of you are the experts here. But I will just mention and mention again because uh, I had mentioned earlier the two bills that are, you know, just sitting in Parliament waiting for it to be enacted, the sexual harassment bill as well as the gender equality bill. So the sexual harassment bill, for instance, looks at the gaps in the Employment Act, also looks at you know, um, the act where um, foreign spouses of Malaysians are concerned. So in recent media articles, and also what's circulating in social media platforms, there is a lot of, um, I suppose, grievances on dissatisfaction in terms of the very clear um, uh, gender inequalities when it comes to, uh, you know, the female foreign spouses of Malaysians and also the Employment Act, for instance. So that's why uh, when feminists and activists got together to draft the sexual harassment bill, it was meant to address the legal loopholes in the Employment Act, for instance. So that is why, um, you know, feminist activists and feminist lawmakers would, um, or anyone who is invested in gender equality, would also be pushing for the gender equality bill because we need more than, you know, um, this specific article in the federal constitution. And what the Federal Equality Bill does is that it is more encompassing and, you know, it, um, it looks to, to mainstreaming gender equality as something that is overarching, something that uh, is, is, is meant to be embedded in, you know, the different uh, pieces of legislation. Otherwise, you would have a very disparate situation where there are certain laws that are quite archaic, that have not quite changed, not quite gone through, I don't know, the necessary amendments, the iterations of that. Whereas, you know, there will be others like this particular article, eight, um, Article 8, Clause 2. And in terms of people who interpret the law to enforce it, um, it's not carried forward. And actually, a broader, a broader interpretation of Article 8.2 should also be relevant for members of the LGBT community. Yeah? I agree, Dr. Sharon. Uh, Article 8.2 should have also covered the LGBTQ members because they're also part of our uh, people. And um, you have mentioned that the previous government has already uh, pulled up a bill such as sexual harassment bill to cater to the gender bias, uh, gender bias issue. However, according to the World Bank's Women, Business and the Law report, 
uh, unfortunately, it faces Malaysia as the last out of 18 countries in the East Asia and Pacific region in terms of the number of differences in the laws treatments of men and also women. Hence, what are the recommendations for Malaysia to reach a de facto gender equality? And perhaps you could give uh, some sort of an introduction to our audience what is actually de facto and also de jure gender equality. <laughs> Oh, okay. Um, again, I think uh, as you know, le legal experts in the making, both of you would be um, would be in a much better place. I just wanted to add before I answer this question, uh, Farisha, that I mentioned earlier that some people weaponize, you know, cultures and religions. They use that as a source of discrimination. So, gender-based discrimination and violence. Some people distort. Um, you know, religion and also cultural practices to sort of justify gender-based discrimination and violence. And the people who are on the receiving end, um, majority of whom are women, but there are also men and definitely the LGBT community. And it's not just uh, people who purposefully, you know, um, distort cultural and, and religious uh, practices and interpretations to do this. But gender inequality also happens when there is the lack of political will. So that is something I want to emphasize um, very clearly. Uh, and that's why we should hold our governments, the government of the day, our governments accountable, you know, when there are gender inequalities. In terms of de jure and de facto, um, if I've understood it correctly, but please add on and correct me if I'm wrong. Um, de facto is uh, what happens, what transpires in reality. De jure, I guess, would be maybe like what is aspirational. But please correct me if I'm wrong, yeah? So there is usually a gap. There is usually a gap between what our, imagine we were going in for promotion, you know, aspirational targets. These are articulated, these are in black and white. Um, these are the letter of the law, so to speak. But what happens in reality, there is usually a, a, um, a gap, a wide gap. Uh, some, in some cases, it may not be so wide, but in others, there, there is quite a wide gap. And um, in terms of the recommendations, I think firstly, it's, it's a sorry thing that, you know, we ranked last, but in a way, I want to say that um, when we look at gender indexes like this, gender development indexes, um, it is a good thing to have because it reminds governments in their drive towards, you know, progress and development that you cannot consider yourself as a fully developed nation if there are, you know, vulnerable communities who are made more vulnerable because of policies and programs that have not recognized or have not been sensitized to gender inequalities and inequities. So that is uh, the first point. And that's why it's important to have rankings like this so that we get a holistic picture. And, you know, it's um, basically the tagline of the sustainable development goals that no one should be left behind. And at the rate we are going, 
there are many people already left behind who are going to be even left farther behind. So what are the recommendations for us in terms of bridging that gap, eh? in terms of what we call bringing the conventions home? How do we bridge the gap between theory and practice, between aspirational and real targets? Um, we have gone through some of these uh, recommendations. Firstly, governments must have the political will to change their own mindsets, you know, because even the lawmakers are human beings. They come with all of these unconscious biases. So firstly, they need to recognize that within themselves, they have some of these unconscious biases and then the will to change it. And then when you wear a different hat and now you are a lawmaker, there is a duty, you know, where even if you had personal biases, you have a duty in holding yourself accountable to the people who voted you in to um, make real, uh, to actualize the goals of CEDAW, for instance. There is also the Beijing Platform for Action and there are other conventions, you know, the rights of the child. Um, and then there are uh, conventions on um, racial discrimination, for instance, and the correct way that you should be treating refugees and stateless or undocumented migrant workers. So the government of Malaysia, um, even when it has signed on or ratified some of these conventions, are not actually um, doing enough to fully operationalize. So first of all, their own mindsets need to change. And in terms of gender mainstreaming, that's the second, um, that's the second action that needs to happen. So across the various ministries, as I've mentioned, um, there needs to be gender mainstreaming so that realizing the goals of gender equality and gender equity is not just the responsibility of, you know, designated ministries like the Ministry of Women. And of course, the person who's heading the Ministry of Women, Family and Community Development, if they themselves are not gender sensitized and they don't buy in into, you know, the, the, the ethos of gender equality, that is a huge problem because the people who are driving reforms are not even convinced themselves that gender equality is a human right, is a fundamental human right. Um, and then along with the 17th Sustainable Development Goal, you need to have, as Connie had mentioned earlier, collaboration. You need to have collaboration, very meaningful and substantive uh, collaboration among various stakeholders. So it's people like you and I, you know, working in tandem with other members of civil society. It's all of us using the internet um, to harness uh, connectivity in order to advance and not impede gender equality because you also have people who harness the internet to impede um, the advancement of rights. Huh? So it, it works both ways. Uh, there are all of these camps, all diverse camps, and all of us need to work together with the government um, of the day. And this is assuming, of course, there is a functional government, there is a well-intentioned government who is looking after the interests of the people. And in this time, in the time of COVID-19, I know that you are aware of how um, gender equality has regressed you know, that women are um, more disproportionately and more adversely 
the impacted by COVID-19. So you will find that, you know, whenever we go into partial lockdown or full lockdown, and when um, women and children and some men who are, you know, um, experiencing uh, gender-based violence in the home, so they are cooped up with their aggressors, so that becomes a problem. And in terms of people who are let go, people who become unemployed, usually, you know, contract workers, um, uh, casual workers will be the first ones to go. And in many instances, women hold these positions as casual workers or, you know, part-time workers because they are also taking on the burden of being the primary caregiver in their homes. Yeah, in, in this uh, time of COVID-19. So there are always, um, you know, new circumstances, new situations that will test, that will test um, to what extent we are um, conscious about these rights, to what extent do we hold ourselves accountable, even in, in times, you know, pre-COVID, where there were very well-meaning people and, you know, these bills were on track, but then suddenly COVID happens, you know, and the sexual harassment bill, the gender equality bill is like pushback. It's not even considered because um, it seems as though livelihoods are, you know, uh, more important. And then when you have mindsets like that, it becomes very dangerous because then you, you, you know, have like a hierarchy of rights, you know, that the rights that gender equality rights, uh, the right to gender equality, the right to self-determination, the right to bodily autonomy, bodily integrity, all of these rights can wait, wait until COVID is over. But, you know, even when COVID is so-called over, don't know when that will be, there is still the fallout because so many have been made unemployed, you know, so many are already struggling and uh, are, um, made poor huh, overnight, you know, struggling, raising the white flag and all of that. So how do we make sense of that? How do we make sense of this very real human crisis? And how do we still champion gender equality, for instance? So that is another challenge. And so in the first place, governments need to be functional. They need to have the interests of the people so that, you know, together, um, all of these, all of these concerns and all of these critical areas of concerns can be seen to, and you know, no one concern needs to wait until other so-called more important concerns, you know, get tackled first. So we should be able to have the the human resources to work on all of these, you know, concerns at the same time, uh, concurrently. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Sharon. I think, unfortunately, our time has elapsed. Uh, thank you so much for giving us such insightful inputs. We appreciate and enjoy very much. We learned a lot from this very short uh, interview session with you. Uh, and we hope that the audience will also uh, benefit from this podcast. Uh, thank you. Uh, and for the audience, stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you, thank you so much for this. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Sharon. Thank you for listening to the Gavelcast. This podcast has been brought to you by the Alsa Malaysia National Board. 
If you love the Gablecast, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and give us a review on any podcast platforms. For more info about Alsa Malaysia, do check us out at alsamalaysia.com and don't forget to catch our next episode.